Chapter Two, Part Two of The History of the Catholic Church from the Renaissance to the French Revolution, Volume Two by Reverend James McCaffrey. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. To prepare the way for the sentence that might be published at any moment by the Pope, a bill was introduced forbidding appeals to Rome under penalty of premunire and declaring that all matrimonial suits should be decided in England and that the clergy should continue their ministrations in spite of any censures or interdicts that might be promulgated by the Pope. The bill was accepted by the House of Lords, but met with serious opposition in the Commons. An offer was made to raise two hundred thousand pounds for the King's use, if only he would refer the whole question. But in the end, partly by threats and partly by deception regarding the attitude of the Pope and the Emperor, the opposition was induced to give way, and the bill became law. By this act it was declared that the realm of England should be governed by one supreme head and king, to whom both spirituality and temporality were bound to yield, next to God a natural and humble obedience, that the English church was competent to manage its own affairs without the interference of foreigners, and that all spiritual cases should be heard and determined by the king's jurisdiction and authority. The question of the divorce was brought before the convocation in March 1533, and though Fisher spoke out boldly in defense of Catherine's marriage, his brethren failed to support him, and convocation declared against the legitimacy of the marriage. Henry was now free to throw off the mask. He could point to the verdict given in his favor by both Parliament and convocation, and could rely on Cramner as Archbishop of Canterbury to carry out his wishes. In order to provide for the legitimacy of the child that was soon to be born, he had married Anne Boleyn privately in January 1533. In April, Cranmer requested permission to be allowed to hold a court to consider Henry's marriage with Catherine, to which request, inspired as it had been by himself, the king graciously assented. The court sat at Dunstable, where Catherine was cited to appear. On her refusal to plead, she was condemned as contumacious. Sentence was given by the archbishop that her marriage with Henry was invalid. 23rd April, 1533. Cramner next turned his attention to Henry's marriage with Anne. And as might be expected, this pliant minister had no difficulty in pronouncing in its favor. On Whit Sunday, 1533, Anne was crowned as queen in Westminster Abbey. The popular feeling in London and throughout the kingdom was decidedly hostile to the new queen and to the French ambassador, who was blamed for taking sides against Catherine but Henry was so confident of his own power that he was unmoved by the conduct of the London mob. In September, to the great disappointment of the king, who had been led by the astrologers and sorcerers to believe that he might expect the advent of an heir, a daughter was born, to whom was given the name Elizabeth. The Pope, acting on the request of the French and English ambassadors, had delayed to pronounce a definitive sentence, but the news of Henry's marriage with Anne, and of the verdict that had been promulgated by the Archbishop of Canterbury, made it imperative that decisive measures should be taken. On the 11th of July, it was decreed that Henry's divorce from Catherine and his marriage with Anne were null and void. Sentence of excommunication against him was prepared, but its publication was postponed till September, when an interview had been arranged to take place between the Pope and Francis I. Francis I was not without hope, even still, that an amicable settlement could be arranged. Throughout the whole proceedings, he had espoused warmly Henry's cause, and the belief that England, having broken completely with Catherine's nephew, Charles V, might be forced to conclude an alliance with France. But he never wished that Henry VIII should set the Holy See at defiance, or that England should be separated from the Catholic Church. To the Pope and to Henry, he had addressed his remonstrances and petitions in turn, but events had reached such a climax that mediation was almost an impossibility. The interview arranged between the Pope and Francis I took place at Marseilles in October 1533. Regardless of all the rules of diplomatic courtesy and of good manners, Henry's representative forced his way into the presence of the Pope and announced to him that the King of England had appealed from the verdict of Rome to the judgment of a general council. Notices of this appeal were posted up in London, and preachers were ordered to declaim against the authority of the Pope, who was to be styled henceforth Bishop of Rome, and whose sentences and excommunications the people were to be informed were of no greater importance than those of any other foreign bishop. 
the way was now open for the final act of separation parliament met in january fifteen thirty four the law passed the previous year against the payments of annats was now promulgated according to this act the pope was not to be consulted for the future regarding appointments to english sees when a bishopric became vacant the chapter having received the conge de lire should proceed to elect the person named in the royal letters accompanying the conge and the person so elected should be presented to the metropolitan for consecration in case of a metropolitan see the archbishop-elect should be consecrated by another metropolitan and two bishops or by four bishops appointed by the crown another act was passed forbidding the payment of peter's pence and all other fees and pensions paid formerly to rome the archbishop of canterbury was empowered to grant dispensations and the penalties of premunier were levelled against all persons who should apply for faculties to the pope by a third act the prohibition against appeals to rome was renewed although it was permitted to appeal from the court of the archbishop of canterbury to the king's court of chancery convocation was forbidden to enact any new ordinances without the consent of the king and those passed already were to be subject to revision by a royal commission finally an act was passed vesting the succession in the children of henry and anne to the exclusion of the princess mary the marriage with catherine was declared null and void by parliament on the ground principally that no man could dispense with god's law and to prevent such incestuous unions in the future a list of the forbidden degrees was drawn up in order to be exhibited in the public churches to question the marriage of henry and anne boleyn by writing word deed or act was declared to be high treason and all persons should take an oath acknowledging the succession under pain of misprison or treason that the parliament was forced to adopt these measures against its own better judgment is clear from the small number of members who took their seats in the house of lords as well as from the fact that some of the commoners assured the imperial ambassador that were his master to invade england he might count on considerable support in rome the agents of francis i fearing that an alliance between france and england would be impossible were henry to throw off his allegiance to the church moved heaven and earth to prevent a definitive sentence the fact that the emperor was both unable and unwilling to enforce the decision of the pope and that instead of desiring the excommunication and deposition of henry he was opposed to such a step made it more difficult for the pope to take decisive measures finally after various consultations with the cardinals sentence was given declaring the marriage with catherine valid and the children born of that marriage legitimate twenty third march fifteen thirty four when the news of this decision reached england henry was alarmed he feared that the emperor might declare war at any moment that an imperial army might be landed on the english shores and that francis i yielding to the entreaties of the pope might make common cause with the imperialists orders were given to strengthen the fortifications and to hold the fleet in readiness agents were dispatched to secure the neutrality of france and preachers were commanded to denounce the bishop of rome as matters stood however there is no need for such alarm the emperor had enough to engage his attention in spain and germany and the enmity between charles v and the king of france was too acute to prevent them from acting together even in defence of their common religion meantime it was clear to henry that popular feeling was strong against his policy but instead of being deterred by this he became more obstinate and determined to show the people that his wishes must be obeyed a nun named elizabeth barton generally known as the nun of kent claimed to have been favoured with special visions from on high she denounced the king's marriage with anne and bewailed the spread of heresy in the kingdom people flocked from all parts to interview her and even cranmer pretended to be impressed by her statements she and many of her principal supporters were arrested and condemned to death november fifteen thirty four it was hoped that by her confession it might be possible to placate bishop fisher who was specially hated by henry on account of the stand he had made on the question of the marriage and the late lord chancellor sir thomas more both had met the nun but had been careful to avoid everything that could be construed even remotely as treason in the act of attainder introduced into parliament against elizabeth barton and her confederates the names of fisher and more were included but so strong was the feeling in more's favour that his name was erased 
Fisher, although able to clear himself from all reasonable grounds of suspicion, was found guilty of misprison of treason and condemned to pay a fine of three hundred pounds. Fisher and Moore were then called upon to take the oath of succession, which, as drawn up, included, together with an acknowledgment of the legitimacy of the children born of Henry and Anne, a repudiation of the primacy of the Pope, and of the validity of Henry's marriage with Catherine. Both were willing to accept the succession, as fixed by Act of Parliament, but neither of them could accept the other propositions. They were arrested, therefore, and lodged in the Tower, April 1534. Commissions were appointed to minister the oath to the clergy and laity, most of whom accepted it, some through fear of the consequences of refusal, and others in the hope of receiving a share of the monastic lands, which, it was rumoured, would soon be at the disposal of the king. A royal commission, consisting of George Brown, prior of the Augustinian hermits, and Dr. Hilsey, provincial of the Dominicans, was appointed to visit the religious houses, and to obtain the submission of the members, April 1534. By threats of dissolution and confiscation, they secured the submission of most of the monastic establishments, with the exception of the observance of Richmond and Greenwich, and the Carthusians of the Charter House, London. Many of the members of these communities were arrested and lodged in the tower, and the decree went forth that the seven houses belonging to the observance, who had offered a strenuous opposition, should be suppressed. The convocations of Canterbury and York submitted, as did also the universities of Oxford and Cambridge. When Parliament met again in November 1534, a bill was introduced proclaiming the king supreme head of the church in England. The measure was based upon the recognition of royal supremacy extracted from convocation three years before, but with the omission of the saving clause, as far as the law of Christ allows. According to this act, it was declared that the king justly and rightly is and ought to be the supreme head of the church in England, and to enjoy all the honors, dignities, preeminences, jurisdictions, privileges, authorities, immunities, profits and commodities appertaining to the dignity of the supreme head of the church. An act of attainder was passed against Fisher, Moore, and all others who had refused submission. The first fruits formerly paid to the Pope were to be paid to the king, and bishops were allowed to appoint men approved by the crown to be their assistants. By these measures the constitution of the church, as it had been accepted for centuries by the English clergy and laity, was overturned. The authority of the pope was rejected in favor of the authority of the king, who was to be regarded in the future as the source of all ecclesiastical jurisdiction. This great religious revolution was carried out without the consent of the bishops and clergy. With a single exception of Cramner, the bishops to a man opposed the change, and if they and the great body of the clergy made their submission, in the end, they did so not because they were convinced by the royal arguments, but because they feared the royal displeasure. Neither was the change favored by any considerable section of the nobles and people. The former were won over partly by fear, partly by hope of securing a share in the plunder of the church. The latter, dismayed by the cowardly attitude shown by their spiritual and lay leaders, saw no hope of successful resistance. Had there been any strong feeling in England against the Holy See, some of the bishops and clergy would have spoken out clearly against the Pope, at a time when such a step would have merited the approval of the king. The fact that the measure could have been passed in such circumstances is in itself the best example of what is meant by Tudor despotism, in the days when an English parliament was only a machine for registering the wishes of the king. In January 1535, an order was made that the king should be styled supreme head of the Church of England. Thomas Cromwell, who had risen rapidly at court, in spite of the disgrace of his patron, Cardinal Wolsey, was entrusted with the work of forcing the clergy and laity to renounce the authority of the Pope. The bishops were commanded to surrender the bulls of appointment they had received from Rome, and to acknowledge expressly that they recognized the royal supremacy. Cromwell was appointed the king's vicar-general, from whom the bishops and archbishops were obliged to take their directions. Severe measures were to be used against anybody who spoke even in private in favor of Rome. The prior of the London Charter House and some other Carthusians were brought to trial for refusing to accept the royal supremacy, April 1535. After an able and uncompromising defense, they were found guilty of treason and were put to death with the most revolting cruelty. Bishop Fisher and Sir Thomas More 
who were prisoners in the tower, were allowed some time to consider their course of conduct. Fisher declared that he could not acknowledge the king as supreme head of the church. While he lay in prison awaiting his trial, Paul III, in acknowledgment of his loyal services to the church, conferred on him a cardinal's hat. This honor, however well merited, served only to arouse the ire of the king. He declared that by the time the hat should arrive, Fisher should have no head on which to wear it, and to show that this was no idle threat, a peremptory order was dispatched that unless Fisher and Moore took the oaths before the feast of St. John, they should suffer the penalty prescribed for traitors. Fisher, together with some monks of the Carthusians, was brought to trial, June 1535, and was found guilty of treason, for having declared that the king was not supreme head of the church. The prisoners were condemned to be hanged, drawn, and quartered. In the case of the Carthusians, the sentence was carried out to the letter, but as it was feared that Fisher might die before he reached Tyburn, he was beheaded in the tower, 22nd June, and his head was impaled on London Bridge. Sir Thomas More was placed on his trial in Westminster Hall before a special commission, 1st July. Able lawyer as he was, he had no difficulty in showing that by silence he had committed no crime and broken no act of Parliament, but no defence could avail him against the wishes of the king. The jury promptly returned a verdict of guilty. Before a sentence was passed, the prisoner spoke out manfully against royal supremacy and in defence of the authority of Rome. He declared that the act of Parliament, which conferred on the king the title of supreme head of the church, was opposed both to the laws of God and man, that it was in flagrant contradiction to the Magna Charta, and that the king of England could no more refuse obedience to the Holy See than a child could refuse obedience to his father. Even after his trial and condemnation, another attempt was made to induce him to submit, but he refused, and on the 6th July he finished his career as a martyr for Rome. The execution of Fisher and Moore showed plainly to all that the breach with Rome was not likely to be healed. When news of what had taken place in England reached Rome, Paul III was anxious to issue a decree of deposition against Henry. Had he done so, and had he been supported by the Emperor and Francis I, there is no doubt that many of the English noblemen would have joined the standard of the invaders, but the hostility between France and the Emperor saved Henry. Neither party was willing to aid the Pope, lest the other should form an alliance with England. Fearing such a union, however, between Francis I and Charles V, Henry hastened to seek the aid of the Protestant princes of Germany. From 1531 he had been in communication with them, urging them to be careful about introducing religious innovations, but he was now so alarmed lest the Emperor and the King of France might join hands to assist the Pope in convoking a general council, that English envoys were directed to meet the Protestant princes at Schmalkald, 1535, to arrange for common action. A close union between England and the Protestant states of Germany could not be effected, because the Protestant princes insisted that Henry should accept the confession of Augsburg, and Henry refused to permit such interference in the religious affairs of England. Still, English divines were instructed to remain at Wittenberg, and Lutheran theologians were invited to come to England for the discussion of religious differences. Meanwhile, Cromwell was engaged in the visitation of the monasteries of England, 1535. To bring home to the minds of the bishops the meaning of royal supremacy, he suspended their visitations while the royal visitors were at work. Cromwell, unable to undertake the duty himself, appointed delegates and supplied them with a list of questions that should be administered. His principal delegates were Richard Layton and Thomas Lay, both men, as is evident from their own letters, who were not likely to be over-scrupulous about the methods they employed. They were harsh, rude, and brutal in their treatment of both monks and nuns, especially in houses where they suspected hostility to the recent laws. They used every means in their power to break up the harmony of religious life and to unsettle the minds of the younger members of the communities. In a few months the visitations were finished, and the reports of the visitors were presented to Cromwell. According to these reports, most of the monasteries and convents were homes of sin and vice, and many of the monks and nuns were guilty of heinous crimes. But, though in particular instances there may have been some grounds for these charges, there is good reason for not accepting as trustworthy this account of monastic discipline. 
in the first place the royal visitors traversed the country with such lightning-like rapidity that it would have been impossible for them to arrive at a correct judgment even had they been impartial and honest men that they were neither honest nor impartial is clear enough from their own correspondence they were sent out by cromwell to collect evidence that might furnish a decent pretext for suppressing the monasteries and for confiscating the monastic possessions and they took pains to show their master that his confidence in them had not been misplaced their only mistake was that in their eagerness to black the character of the unfortunate religious they exceeded the limits of human credulity they positively revelled in sin and the scandals they reported were of such a gross and hideous kind that it is impossible to believe that they could have been true else the people instead of taking up arms to defend the religious houses would have risen in revolt to suppress such abominations nor is it correct to say that the comperta were submitted to parliament for discussion and that the members were so shocked by the tale they unfolded that they clamoured for the suppression of these iniquitous institutions there is abundant evidence to prove that parliament was reluctant to take any action against the religious houses that it was only by the personal intervention of the king that the bill for the suppression of the lesser monasteries was allowed to pass and that it is at least doubtful if any but general statements founded by the comperta were brought before parliament the story of the production of the black book supposed to contain the reports is of a much later date and comes from sources that could not be regarded as unprejudiced it had its origin probably in a misunderstanding of the nature of the compendium compertorum which dealt only with parishes of the northern province it is strange that though the commissioners made no distinction between the condition of the larger and the smaller monasteries the act of parliament based upon these reports decreed only the suppression of the smaller monasteries as if vice and neglect of discipline were more likely to reign in the small rather than in the large communities and it is equally strange that the superiors of many of the houses about which unfavorable reports have been presented were promoted to high ecclesiastical offices by the king and by his vicar-general who should have been convinced of the guilt and unworthiness of such ministers had they trusted their own commissioners in the case of some of the dioceses as for example norwich it is possible to compare the results of an episcopal visitation held some years previously with the reports of cromwell's commissioners and though it is sufficiently clear from these earlier reports that all was not well with discipline the discrepancy between the accounts of the bishops and the royal commissioners is so striking that it is difficult to believe that the houses could have degenerated so rapidly in so short a space of time as to justify the comperta of the commissioners but what is still more striking is the fact that after the decree of suppression had gone forth other commissioners drawn largely from the local gentry many of whom were to share in the plunder of the monastic lands visited several of the houses against which serious charges had been made and found nothing worthy of special blame these men were not likely to be prejudiced in favour of the monks and nuns they were well acquainted with the people of the district and had every opportunity of learning the verdict of the masses about the discipline of the religious communities they were therefore in a much better position to arrive at the truth than the royal commissioners who could only pay a flying visit of a few hours or at most of a few days the real object of the visitation and of the scandalous reports to which it gave rise was to secure some specious pretext that would justify the king in the eyes of the nation in suppressing the monasteries and in confiscating their possessions the idea that the monastic establishments enjoyed only the administration of their lands and goods and that these might be seized upon at any moment for the public weal was not entirely a new one either in the history of england or in that of some of the continental countries years before cardinal wolsey for example had dissolved more than twenty monasteries in order to raise funds for his colleges at ipswich and oxford while not unfrequently the kings of england rewarded their favourites and servants by granting them a pension to be paid by a particular monastery with the rise of the middle classes to power and the gradual awakening of greater agricultural and commercial activity greedy eyes were turned to the monasteries and the farms owned by the religious institutions unlike the property of private individuals these lands were never likely to be in the market and humanly speaking a transfer of ownership could be effected only by a violent revolution many people therefore though not unfriendly to the monks and nuns as such were not disinclined to entertain the proposals of the king for the confiscation of religious property 
particularly as hopes were held out to the nobles wealthy merchants and the corporations of cities and towns that the property so acquired could take the place of the taxes that otherwise must be raised to meet local and national expenditure for months between parliament met february fifteen thirty six everything that could be done by means of violent pamphlets and sermons against the monks and the papacy was done to prepare the country for the extreme measures that were in contemplation the king came in person to warn the house of commons that the reports of the royal commissioners showing as they did the wretched condition of the monasteries and convents called for nothing less than the total dissolution of such institutions the members do not appear however to have been satisfied with the king's recommendations and it was probably owing to their feared opposition to a wholesale sacrifice of the monasteries that though the commissioners had made no distinction between the larger and the smaller establishments the measure introduced by the government dealt only with the houses possessing a yearly revenue of less than two hundred pounds even in this mild form great pressure was required to secure the passage of the act for though here and there complaints might have been heard against the enclosures of monastic lands or about the competition of the clerics in secular pursuits the great body of the people were still warmly attached to the monasteries once the decree of dissolution had been passed the work of suppression was begun close on four hundred religious houses were dissolved and their lands and property confiscated to the crown the monks and nuns to the number of about two thousand were left homeless and dependent merely on the miserable pensions which not unfrequently remained unpaid their goods and valuables including the church plate and libraries were seized their houses were dismantled and the roofless walls were left standing or disposed of as quarries for the sale of stones such cruel measures were resented by the masses of the people who were attached to the monasteries and who had always found the monks and nuns obliging neighbors generous to their servants and their tenants charitable to the poor and the wayfarer good instructors of the youth and deeply interested in the temporal as well as in the spiritual welfare of those around them in london and the south-eastern counties where the new tendencies had taken a firmer root a strong minority supported the policy of the king and cromwell but throughout england generally from cornwall to devon to the scottish borders the vast majority of the english people objected to the religious innovations detested cromwell and cranmer as heretics looked to mary as the lawful heir to the throne in spite of the decision of the court at dunstable and denounced the attacks on the monasteries as robbery and sacrilege the excitement spread quickly especially among the peasants and soon news reached london that a formidable rebellion had begun in the north in october fifteen thirty six the men of lincoln took up arms in defence of their religion many of the noblemen were forced to take part in the movement with which they sympathized but which they feared to join lest they should be exposed to the merciless vengeance of the king the leaders proclaimed their loyalty to the crown and announced their intention of sending agents to london to present their petitions they demanded the restoration of the monasteries the removal of heretical bishops such as cranmer and latimer and the dismissal of evil advisers like cromwell and rich henry the eighth returned a determined refusal to their demands and dispatched the earl of shrewsbury and the duke of suffolk to suppress the rebellion the people were quite prepared to fight but the noblemen opened negotiations with the king's commanders and advised the insurgents to disperse the duke of suffolk entered the city of lincoln amidst every sign of popular displeasure although since the leaders had grown faint-hearted no resistance was offered those who had taken a prominent part in the rebellion were arrested and put to death the oath of supremacy was tender to every adult and by the beginning of april fifteen thirty seven all traces of the rebellion had been removed the pilgrimage of grace in the north was destined to prove a much more dangerous movement early in october fifteen thirty six the people of york determined to resist and by the middle of the month the whole country was up in arms under the leadership of robert ask a country gentleman and a lawyer well known in legal services in london soon the movement spread through most of the counties of the north york was surrendered to the insurgents without a struggle pomfret castle where the archbishop of york and many of the nobles had fled for refuge was obliged to capitulate and lord darcy the most loyal supporter of the king in the north agreed to join the party of ask hall opened its gates to the rebels and before the end of october a well-trained army of close on forty thousand men 
led by the principal gentlemen of the north lay encamped four miles north of doncaster where the duke of norfolk at the head of eight thousand of the king's troops awaited the attack the duke fully conscious of the inferiority of his forces and well aware that he could not count on the loyalty of his own soldiers many of whom favoured the demands of the rebels determined to gain time by opening negotiations for a peaceful settlement twenty seventh october two messengers were dispatched to submit their grievances to the king and it was agreed that until an answer should be received both parties should observe the truce the king met the demands for the maintenance of the old faith the restoration of the liberties of the church and the dismissal of ministers like cromwell by a long explanation in defence of his political and religious policy and the messengers returned to announce that the duke of norfolk was coming for another conference many of the leaders argued that the time for peaceful remonstrances had passed and that the issue could be decided now only by the sword had their advice been acted upon the results might have been disastrous for the king but the extreme loyalty of both the leaders and the people and the fear that civil war in england would lead to a new scottish invasion determined the majority to exhaust peaceful means before having recourse to violence an interview between the leaders and the duke of norfolk representing the king was arranged to take place at doncaster fifth december in the meantime a convocation of the clergy was called to meet at pomfret to formulate the religious grievances and a lay assembly to draw up the demands of the people both clergy and people insisted on the acceptance of papal supremacy the restoration of all clergy who had been deposed for resisting royal supremacy the destruction of heretical books such as those written by luther huss melanchthon tundale barnes and st german the dismissal of heretical bishops and advisers such as cromwell and the re-establishment of religious houses face to face with such demands backed as they were by an army of forty thousand men norfolk fearing that resistance was impossible had recourse to a dishonest strategy he promised the rebels that a free parliament would be held at york to discuss their grievances that a full pardon would be granted to all who had taken up arms and that in the meantime the monks and nuns would be supported from the revenues of the surrendered monasteries and convents ask whose weak point had always been his extreme loyalty agreed to these terms and ordered his followers to disband he was invited to attend in london for a conference with the king and returned home to announce that henry was coming to open the parliament at york and that the people might rely with confidence on the royal promises but signs were not wanting to show that the insurgents had been betrayed and that they must expect vengeance rather than redress soon it was rumoured that hall and scarborough were being strengthened and that in both cities henry intended to place royal garrisons the people alarmed by the dangers that threatened them attempted vainly to seize these two towns and throughout the north various risings took place the duke of norfolk taking advantage of this violation of the truce and having no longer any strong forces to contend with promptly suppressed these rebellions proclaimed martial law and began a campaign of wholesale butchery hundreds of the rebels including abbots and priests who were suspected of favouring the insurgents were put to death the leaders ask lord darcy lord hussey sir thomas percy sir francis bigod together with the abbots of dervox and of fountains and the prior of bidlington were arrested some of them suffered the penalty of death in london while others were sent back to be executed in their own districts by these measures the rebellion was suppressed in the north and the rest of the counties were intimidated into submission had the emperor decided upon supporting the people of the north the course of english history might have been different but as war had broken out once more between france and the empire both nations anxious to maintain good relations with england abstained from active interference in english affairs pope paul the third deeply interested as he was in the english revolution summoned to his assistance one who understood better than most of his contemporaries the character of the king and the condition of the country namely reginald pole the latter turning his back on the favour of the king and the offer of the archbishopric of york had left england rather than approve of the king's separation from catherine henry however hoping to induce him to return to england maintained friendly relations with pole and requested him to state frankly his views on royal supremacy pole replied in a long treatise afterwards published under the title pro ecclesiasticae unitatis defensione fifteen thirty six in which he reproved the conduct of the king and warned him of the dangers that his religious policy might involve 
Henry, though deeply mortified by the substance and tone of this work, pretended not to be displeased, and in the hope of silencing his distinguished kinsmen, whom he now both feared and hated, he urged him to come back to England. Pole's mother and brothers besought him to yield to the royal wishes, or else he should prove the ruin of all those who were dear to him. Though deeply affected by their appeals, he preferred duty to family affection. He went to Rome, where he was created a cardinal, 1536, and appointed to assist in drawing up a scheme of ecclesiastical reforms in preparation for the general council. Soon news arrived in Rome that a rebellion had broken out in England, that the people were ready to die in defense of their religion, and that the king might be forced to adopt a more conciliatory attitude towards Rome. It was decided to appoint Cardinal Pole papal legate and to send him to England. Such an appointment coming at such a time filled Henry with alarm. He feared that James V of Scotland might be induced to lead an army across the borders to the assistance of the northern rebels, and that France and the Emperor might unite their forces against one who was regarded by both as little less than a heretic. He induced the Privy Council to address a letter to the Cardinal, January 1537, reproaching him for his ingratitude and disloyalty to the King, and inviting him to come to Flanders for a friendly discussion with the English agents. Before the legate could leave Italy, the pilgrimage of grace had been suppressed, and all hope of a successful mission in England was lost. He passed through France and Flanders, where he received a very cool reception from Francis I and the regent of the Netherlands, both of whom had been requested to deliver him to Henry VIII. After a short stay in the territory of the Prince Bishop of Liege, he returned to Rome in August 1537. But though the rebellion in the north had been suppressed, it was sufficiently grave to show Henry the danger incurred at home by religious innovations, while the legatine mission of Cardinal Pole made it advisable to prove to the Catholic rulers of Europe that England had not gone over to the Lutheran camp. The greatest objection taken by the Conservative Party in England to the Ten Articles, drawn up by the King and accepted by Convocation in the previous year, 1536, was the absence of express reference to any sacrament except baptism, penance, and the Eucharist. At the meeting of Convocation, 1537, the battle was waged between the Catholic-minded bishops led by Tungstall of Durham and the Lutheran party led by Cramner. At last the other four sacraments were found again, and a settlement agreeable to both parties arrived at and embodied in a treatise known as The Institution of a Christian Man. It consisted of four parts, the Apostles' Creed, the Seven Sacraments, the Ten Commandments, and the Our Father and Hail Mary. Two separate articles dealing with justification and purgatory taken from the ten articles previously issued were appended. The bishop submitted the institution to the judgment of the king, inviting him as supreme head of the church to correct whatever was amiss with their doctrine. But Henry, anxious to hold himself free to bargain with the Lutheran princes, if necessary, refused to take any responsibility for the work beyond ordering that it might be read in the churches for three years. Hence it was called the bishop's book. Against this, and as a concession to the reforming party in England, Henry was pleased to approve of a translation of the Bible presented to him by Cranmer, and to order copies of it to be provided for the use of the faithful in every parish church, 1537-38. William Tyndale, who had fled from England to Wittenberg, set himself to complete a translation of the Bible, which translation was published and smuggled into England in 1527. The translation was in itself bristling with errors, and the marginal notes were stupidly offensive. The bishops made desperate attempts to secure its suppression, but despite their efforts, the obnoxious translation, and even many of the more objectionable works, written by the same author, continued to find their way into England. The king, though nominally supporting the bishops, was not sorry that such works should be spread amongst the people, as a warning to the pope of the consequences of a refusal to comply with the royal wishes. In 1530, however, he took counsel with the bishops and learned men to see what might be done to procure a good English translation of the Bible. They agreed that the reading of an English version of the Bible was not necessary for salvation, that, though the scriptures in the vulgar tongue might be useful in certain circumstances and for certain people, they were more likely to be harmful at a time when erroneous books and heretical books were being propagated. Furthermore, they advised that a proper correct translation should be made and placed in the king's hands, so that he might order its publication, whenever he thought that a favorable moment had arrived for such a work. 
Cromwell was, however, determined to push forward the new religious teachings. He was in close correspondence with an apostate Augustinian friar named Coverdale, who had been obliged to leave the country on account of his heretical opinions. At Cromwell's instigation, Coverdale set himself to prepare a new translation of the Bible, and it was completed and published about 1535. Unlike that of Tyndale, who had gone to the Greek and Hebrew originals, Coverdale's Bible was made from the Vulgate with the aid of the German Lutheran translation. It was, if anything, even more objectionable than Tyndale's, but Cromwell intended to force it upon the clergy in the injunctions drawn up for their guidance in 1536, though apparently, on further consideration, he doubted the prudence of such a step, and the clause regarding the English Bible was omitted. In 1537, Cramner presented the English Bible to Cromwell for approval. It was supposed to contain the Old and New Testament, truly and purely translated into English by Thomas Matthew but in reality it was only a compilation of the works of Tyndale and Coverdale made by one John Rogers. Though very objectionable from the point of view of Catholic doctrine, it was approved by Cromwell as vicar general, and copies were ordered to be placed in every church, 1538. Nearly two years later, Coverdale's great Bible, with a preface by Cranmer, was published. The results of the free use of such translations were soon apparent in the religious discussions that took place in many parts of England. Henry began to fear that he had acted unwisely in allowing the people to make their religion for themselves, and besides, as Cromwell had fallen, the conservative bishops like Gardiner and Winchester were in the ascendant. In the convocation of 1542, grave objections were raised against these various translations, and with the approval of the king it was resolved to undertake a revision of them. But while the committee appointed for this revision was at work, a messenger arrived from the king, forbidding convocation to proceed further as his majesty had decided to take the matters out of the hands of the bishops and submit it to the universities the bishops protested against this order but their protests were unheeded and an english bible that had been condemned by convocation was forced on the clergy and people against the advice of the ecclesiastical authorities in fifteen forty three however an act was passed in parliament at the request of the king forbidding private individuals to take it upon themselves to interpret the bible in any public assembly Noblemen, gentlemen, householders, and even merchants might retain the English translation and read it, but this favor was denied to the lower classes, unless the king, perceiving their lives to be amended by the doctrines he has set forth, thought fit to give them liberty to read it. Early in 1536, Queen Catherine died. Her heart had been broken by the conduct of the king and by separation from her daughter, the Princess Mary. Time and again she had been commanded, under the threat of the severest punishment, to accept the sentence of Cramner's court, but both herself and the princess refused steadfastly to subscribe to such a dishonorable verdict. After Catherine's death, and merely to save her life, Mary signed a document agreeing to the abolition of papal supremacy and the invalidity of her mother's marriage, though nobody attached any importance to a submission that was obtained in such circumstances. The death of Catherine was a great relief to Henry and Anne, more especially to the latter, who had some reason for believing that she herself had lost her hold on the affections of the king. Henry had already grown weary of the woman, for whose sake he had put his lawful wife away, and separated his kingdom from the Catholic Church, and the disappointment of his hopes for the birth of an heir to the throne confirmed his intention of ridding himself of a partner who was regarded by his own subjects and the nations of Europe only as his concubine. She was arrested on a charge of misconduct with her brother and other gentlemen of the court, was tried before a body of the peers, and was put to death at Tyburn, 17th May, 1536. Cramner, who in his heart was convinced of her innocence, promptly held a court and pronounced her marriage with Henry null and void. On the very day of her execution, he issued a license for the king to marry Jane Seymour, one of Anne's maids of honor, and before the end of the month the marriage was celebrated. In June, Parliament confirmed Cramner's sentence by declaring the invalidity of Henry's previous marriages and the illegitimacy of Mary and Elizabeth, and by fixing the succession on the heirs of the King and Jane Seymour. Furthermore, in case there might be no children, it was empowered the King to determine by his will who should succeed. The object of this was to enable him to appoint as his heir his bastard son, the Duke of Richmond, but this intention was frustrated by the death of the Duke. July, 1537. 
while parliament was in session convocation assembled once more cromwell as the king's vicar-general in spirituals claimed the right to preside either in person or by proxy many of the new bishops who had been appointed since fifteen thirty three were distinctly lutheran in their ideas and tendencies latimer worcester who was well known to favour german theology was supported by five others shaxton goodrich edward fox hilsey and barlow though latimer on a former occasion had been censured by convocation he was selected to deliver the opening sermon in which he inveighed against purgatory images altars relics pilgrimages the carelessness of the clergy and the abuses of the spiritual courts convocation having approved of cranmer's verdict regarding henry's marriage with anne boleyn a petition was sent up from the lower house to the bishops complaining of the erroneous views propagated by various preachers in the province of canterbury the vast body of the older bishops were determined to condemn these heretical views which were little less than the renewal of the lollard teaching with a slight admixture of lutheran theology but cranmer latimer and fox were equally determined to prevent such a condemnation the dispute promised to be both warm and protracted cromwell however appeared in the assembly with a book of ten articles drawn up by the king for securing religious unanimity and insisted that the prelates should accept them the articles were moderate in tone and generally were not in opposition to the old theology they approved of transubstantiation emphasized the importance and necessity of baptism penance and the eucharist without affirming that these were the only three sacraments declared that good works were necessary for justification that prayers might be offered for those who were dead that the use of the word purgatory was not to be recommended that reverence should be shown to images and pictures and that the older ceremonies should be retained the great objection to these articles was not the doctrine they set forth but the fact that they were issued by the king's authority that the king of england could revise the beliefs and ceremonies of the catholic church was in itself a revolution and should have opened the eyes of the catholic-minded bishops to the full meaning of royal supremacy furthermore convocation declared that the bishop of rome could not convene a general council without the permission and cooperation of the christian princes a few weeks later cromwell issued a set of injunctions to be observed by the clergy charged with the care of souls they were to set forth the articles drawn up by the king to discourage pilgrimages and the observation of holidays that had not been abrogated not to lay too much stress upon images and relics and to warn the people to teach their children in english the our father the creed and the ten commandments they were to give one-fortieth of their income to the poor one-fifth to the repair of the churches and those who held the richer benefices were commanded to spend their surplus revenue in maintaining a student or students at oxford and cambridge in the autumn of fifteen thirty six three sets of royal commissioners were at work one superintending the suppression of the lesser monasteries a second charged with communicating cromwell's instructions to the clergy and removing those priests who were unwilling to accept them and a third entrusted with the collection of royal taxation on ecclesiastical benefices by these commissions the entire face of the country was changed the monastic institutions were suppressed and the servants and labourers in their employment were turned adrift the relief to the poor and the wayfarer was discontinued and the tenants awaited with nervousness the arrival of the new grandees the possessions of the religious houses instead of being spent on the development of education and the relief of the taxes found their way for the most part into the royal treasury or into the pockets of the officials charged with the work of suppression oxford and cambridge were reduced to sullen submission and obliged to accept a new set of statutes to abolish the study of canon law in favour of civil law to confine the divinity courses to lectures on the scriptures and to place in the hands of the students the classical authors together with the humanist commentaries thereon instead of the tomes of duns scotus or st thomas such changes as has been shown led to rebellion in different parts of the country but especially in the north where loyalty to rome was still regarded as compatible with loyalty to the king after the suppression of the rebellions in the north and the failure of cardinal pole to bring about an european coalition against henry the war against the great monasteries was begun fifteen thirty seven those situated in the northern counties were charged with having been implicated in the rebellion many of the abbots were put to death or imprisoned and the goods of the communities were confiscated several others in order to escape punishment were induced to surrender their property to the king's commissioners in some cases the abbots were bribed by promises of special favours for themselves 
in others they were forced to yield up their titles to avoid charges of treason on account of documents supposed to have been discovered in their houses or evidence that had been extracted from some of their monks or retainers during the years fifteen thirty eight and fifteen thirty nine the monasteries fell one by one while during the same period war was carried on against shrines and pilgrimages the images of our lady of ipswich and of our lady of walsingham were destroyed the tomb of st thomas a becket was rifled of its precious treasures and the bones and relics of the saint were treated with the greatest dishonour everywhere throughout the country preachers inspired by cromwell and cramner the latter of whom aimed at nothing less than a lutheran revolution in england were at work denouncing images pilgrimages invocation of saints and purgatory so long as money poured into the royal treasury from the sale of surrendered monastical property and of the ecclesiastical goods or so long as a blow could be struck at the papacy by desecrating the tomb of a saint who had died as a martyr in defence of the holy see henry looked on with indifference if not with pleasure but the news of such outrages could not fail to horrify the catholic world and to prove to paul the third that there was little hope of any favourable change in henry's religious policy it was determined to give effect to the bull of excommunication that had been prepared for years and to call upon the catholic powers of europe to put it into execution either by a joint declaration of war or by an interruption of commercial relations with england the time seemed specially favourable for the publication of such a sentence after years of active or smouldering hostility the two great rivals charles v and francis i had arranged a ten years truce june fifteen thirty eight and cardinal pole was sent as legate to spain and france to induce the emperor and francis i to take common action james v of scotland promised his assistance and a papal envoy was dispatched to scotland to bear the cardinal's hat to archbishop beaton and to encourage the king to cooperate with the catholic rulers of the continent when the news of these preparations reached england henry was thoroughly alarmed for the safety of his kingdom the brothers of cardinal pole sir geoffrey pole and lord montague his mother the countess of salisbury henry courtenay marquis of exeter lord delawar sir edward neville sir nicholas carew and others were arrested nominally on the charge of treason but in reality because the poles and the courtenays were regarded as dangerous claimants to the english throne with the exception of sir geoffrey pole who turned king's evidence and the countess of salisbury who was kept in confinement for years the others were put to death and commissioners were sent into cornwall to suppress all attempts at rebellion during the spring of fifteen thirty nine preparations for repelling an invasion were pushed forward with feverish activity and so great was the loyalty of the vast body of the english people and so hateful to them was the idea of a foreign invasion that many who detested henry's religious policy came forward with their assistance the fortresses along the coast and on the scottish borders were strengthened and replenished the fleet was held in readiness in the thames and a volunteer army trained and equipped was raised to contest the progress of the invaders or at least to defend the capital negotiations with the protestant princes of germany for the conclusion of an offensive and defensive alliance were opened and to prevent a commercial boycott a proclamation was issued that except in case of wool foreigners trading in england should be obliged to pay only the duties and customs imposed upon englishmen but as events showed there was no necessity for these warlike preparations francis i could not dare to forward an ultimatum to england unless aided by the emperor and charles v confronted with a turkish invasion and a protestant rebellion in germany found it impossible to undertake an expedition against england nor was the project of a commercial boycott likely to be more successful the flemish merchants in the netherlands were too deeply interested in english trade to permit them to look favourably upon a scheme that was likely to prove as ruinous to their own country as to england particularly as the recent proclamation in favour of foreign merchants offered them a special opportunity for pushing their wares beyond the channel a new parliament was summoned to meet in april fifteen thirty nine cromwell who was a past master in the art of selecting and managing such assemblies took care that men should be returned who were likely to favour the projects of the king and in this action he succeeded beyond expectations an act of attainder was passed against cardinal pole and against the countess of salisbury as well as against those who had been executed a short time before as the ten articles on religion published by the king and the improved version of these articles known as the bishop's book 
had not proved sufficient to suppress religious controversy in the kingdom or to prevent england from being regarded as the heretical nation on the continent henry determined to lay down a fixed rule of faith that should be accepted by all his subjects and that should prove to the emperor and to france that england though separated from rome was still loyal to the catholic religion a commission of bishops was appointed to prepare a report on the principal points of faith that had been called in question but the bishops were divided into two hostile camps while cranmer latimer shaxton goodrich and barlow were strongly lutheran in their tendencies archbishop lee of york gardiner of winchester tunstall of durham and aldrich of carlisle were opposed to all dogmatic innovations though cromwell supported secretly the reforming party it soon became known that henry the eighth favoured the conservatives as no agreement could be arrived at by the bishops the duke of norfolk who was rising rapidly at court as a champion of conservative interests took the matter out of the hands of the bishops by proposing to the house of lords six articles dealing with the main points of difference between the catholics and the lutherans of the continent on these articles the laymen did not venture to express any opinion but cranmer latimer and their friends held out till at last henry appeared himself and confounded them all with god's learning the decision was embodied in an act of parliament entitled an act abolishing diversity of opinions which having received the royal assent was placed upon the statute book fifteen thirty nine the articles agreed upon by convocation and parliament and published by the king's authority were one that in the eucharist the substance of the bread and wine is changed into the body and blood of christ two that communion under both kinds is not necessary for salvation three that clerical celibacy should be observed four that vows of chastity should be observed five that private masses ought to be retained and six that auricular confession is expedient denial of the first article namely that regarding transubstantiation was to be deemed heresy punishable by death at the stake and denial of the others was felony punished by forfeiture for the first and by death for the second offence priests who had taken to themselves wives were commanded to put them away under threat of punishment for felony and people who refused to confess and received the eucharist at the usual times were to be imprisoned or fined for the first offence and to be judged guilty of felony for the second offence the act of six articles as it is commonly known or the whip with six strings as it was nicknamed contemptuously by the reformers marked a distinct triumph for the conservative party led by the duke of norfolk among the peers and by gardiner and tunstall amongst the bishops cranmer made his submission and concealed his wife but latimer and shaxton with greater honesty resigned their sees rather than accept the act the vast body of the clergy and people hailed it with delight as a crushing blow delivered against heresy and as proof that henry was determined to maintain the old religion in england but if cromwell had received a check on the question of dogma he determined to curry favour with the king and at the same time to advance the cause he had at heart by securing the suppression of the remaining monasteries an act was passed through all its stages in one day vesting in the king the property of all monasteries that had been suppressed or that were to be suppressed this was done under the pretense that the monks being ungodly and slothful should be deprived of their wealth which if handed over to the king could be devoted to the relief of poverty the education of youth the improvement of roads and the erection of new bishoprics under threat of penalties nearly all the great monasteries surrendered their titles and lands except the abbots of glastonbury reading and colchester all of whom were arrested and put to death fifteen thirty nine the punishment struck terror into the hearts of the others and by the surrender of waltham abbey march fifteen forty the last of the great english monasteries disappeared finally to show the state of complete subserviency to which the english parliament was reduced it passed an act giving to the royal proclamation with certain ill-defined limits the force of law fifteen thirty nine it was evident to all that the position of cromwell at court had become very insecure while england was threatened with an european coalition he had suggested an alliance with the protestant princes of germany and as henry's third wife jane seymour had died fifteen thirty seven after having given birth to a son later on edward the sixth he determined to cement the bond of friendship by a new matrimonial alliance 
the duke of cleves was brother-in-law to the elector of saxony and one of the guiding spirits of the smalcaldic league and as he had given mortal offence to the emperor by his acceptance of the duchy of gilders cromwell decided that a marriage between the duke's sister anne and henry the eighth would secure for england both the alliance of the league of smalcald and at least the neutrality of france though henry detested the elector of saxony and his friends as heretics and though the six articles aroused considerable resentment in the lutheran camp the close union between charles v and francis i and the uncertainty of what steps they might take made it imperative to push forward henry's marriage the marriage treaty was signed in october fifteen thirty nine and in december anne of cleves landed at deal henry who had been led to believe that anne was both accomplished and moderately beautiful could not conceal his disappointment when he met his prospective bride but as his trusted counsellors could devise no plan of escape he consented with bad grace to go through the ceremony of marriage sixth of january fifteen forty henry was displeased and made no secret of his displeasure cromwell whom he blamed specially for this matrimonial misfortune felt himself in considerable danger though at the same time he resolved not to yield without a struggle the contest between cranmer backed by the lutheran party and the council and gardiner the duke of norfolk and the conservatives was sharp though by no means decisive the king appeared at one time to favour one side at another the other side unwilling to commit himself definitely to either especially as cromwell was still reaping a rich harvest from the suppression of the knights of st john and from the taxes imposed on the clergy parliament met again in april fifteen forty to the surprise of many cromwell was created earl of essex seventeenth april while a little later bishop sampson was arrested as a supporter of the pope the hopes of cromwell and of the reforming party rose rapidly and they believed the victory was within their grasp the committee of bishops was at work considering the sacraments but as both the old and the new clung tenaciously to their opinions no progress could be made suddenly on the tenth june an officer appeared in the council chamber and placed cromwell under arrest the long struggle was at last ended and the men who had followed gardiner had won the day the war clouds that had driven henry to negotiate with the heretical princes of germany had blown over and cromwell who had taken a leading part in the german negotiations must be sacrificed to satisfy his enemies at home and catholic opinion on the continent he was committed to the tower to await the sentence of death which he knew to be inevitable but before handing him over to the executioner henry insisted that he should perform for him one last service as cromwell had involved him in an undesirable marriage with anne of cleves he should provide evidence that might set his master free to seek for a more congenial partner at the command of the king cromwell wrote a long letter in which he showed that henry never really consented to the marriage with anne against which marriage the existence of a prenuptial contract was also adduced on the strength of this parliament demanded an investigation and a commission was issued empowering the archbishops of canterbury and york and others of the clergy to examine into the validity of the marriage convocation decided that it was null and void july fifteen forty a decision with which anne expressed her complete satisfaction she was assigned a residence and a pension of four thousand pounds a year on the twenty eighth july fifteen forty cromwell was led to execution at tyburn where he expressed publicly his adherence to the ancient faith for the destruction of which in england he had contributed more than any single individual with the exception possibly of the king a few days later henry was married to catherine howard a niece of the duke of norfolk the recognized lay head of the conservative party in england the penalties prescribed in the statute of the six articles were enforced with great vigour and at the same time those who maintained papal supremacy were treated with equal severity while the men who denied transubstantiation were burned as heretics at smithfield their opponents who dared to express views derogatory to royal supremacy were hanged drawn and quartered as traitors latimer retired into private life cranmer showed no signs of open opposition to the king's religious policy and practically speaking all traces of the new teachings that had disturbed england for years disappeared the aged countess of salisbury mother of cardinal pole was put to death in fifteen forty one two years after sentence of attainder had been passed against her by parliament as were also a large number of priests and laymen suspected of having been implicated in an attempt to bring about another rebellion in the north 
in consequence of this plot henry determined to undertake a journey to york fifteen forty one with the hope of strengthening his hold upon the people and possibly also of securing the friendship of his nephew james v of scotland who had remained loyal to rome and to france the archbishop of york made his submission on bended knees presenting the king with a gift of six hundred pounds as a sign of the repentance of the people for their recent disobedience an example that was followed in many of the cities and towns but james v unwilling to trust his life and liberty to the king refused to cross the english border henry returned to london only to find that serious charges of immorality were being brought against his wife catherine howard she was arrested and put to death with her chief accomplices fifteen forty two though the king could not conceal his joy at finding himself free once more he hesitated for some time before choosing another wife but at last in fifteen forty three his choice fell upon catherine parr a young widow twenty years his junior who was believed to favor royal supremacy though she had been married previously to one of the leaders of the pilgrimage of grace it is said that once at least she stood in serious risk because she ventured to disagree with her husband's theological views but however that may be it is certain that she had the good fortune to survive the king End of chapter two part two